Oh, this is going to be a good one. You're listening to Pete the Planner. This week on the Pete the Planner Show, we answer your money questions. I'm your host, Peter Nicholas Dunn, and joining me in studio is Damien Dunn, Director of Personal Financial Strategies at Your Moneyland. Hello, Dame. Damien Andrew Dunn. Oh, D-A-D, Dad? That's me. Hey, Dad. Hi. How many people call you Dad? Just my two kids. All right. Moving on. So this week's show, uh, like every show, we answer your financial questions. You can send those questions to Dad and I at uh, askpete at yourmoneyline.com. Wait, no. Askpete at petetheplanner.com. If you send it to askpete at yourmoneyline.com, I don't know where it goes. Nowhere. To the abyss. Ask Pete at PeteThePlanner.com. That's Ask Pete. PeteThePlanner.com. A few of your fellow listeners did that this week, and we're going to read their questions. Here's the first one. It's from a person named... Oh, Damien, I can't find their name. It's Dear not, Pete. No. It doesn't matter, I guess. Important. Dear Pete and Dad, my wife's parents are moving to a retirement community and would like to sell us their house. You wonder, who do you think you brought that up? Ooh. <laughs> Let's ooh, take bets ooh. here. Uh, I don't know. Let's. Uh, I bet. I bet the the writer had expressed interest at some point. I don't. The guy was like, "Which I'm ready to go to a retirement community. How about you buy a house, David? Do you think it went like that? Maybe. Was that insulting? Probably. The house would be about forty five thousand dollar more than ours, and has some charming features, but needs a lot of renovations in the range of sixty to eighty thousand dollars. We're about seven to 10 years from retirement ourselves and have the money to pay cash for the house once we sell. And by the way, our son says he'd like to buy our home, but we don't want to act on sentiment alone in making this decision. We have about 500,000 American dollars in cash retirement savings. Any thoughts signed an emailer. All right, Dame, what jumps out to you, buddy? Uh, Something that just jumped out to me and I don't know how pertinent to the conversation necessarily is, but their house that they want to buy is $45,000 more than the house they're in. Do you think they're moving to a bigger house? Yes. That's not a transition that most people make as they enter, get close to retirement. People, uh, what they call it, they right size. They don't downsize or upsize, they right size, which means bigger closets, bigger kitchen, one floor. I think that's what you look at. So it may not be a bigger home as much as it is a nicer home. Okay. All right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it, it kind of stuck out to me that, you know, most people are, like you said, right sizing, and this may or may not be that case. And they said if, if sentiment, sentimentality is in, it's a, no, it's a lot of syllables. Oh, um, if that's what's involved, I would uh, caution them just to make sure that that's not the driving factor, which they're rightly concerned about. The other thing that sticks out to me is to make sure that uh, despite this, potential uh, change in housing that they're on track for retirement. Yeah. When he, when I hear seven to 10 years and you got a half million, you and I start to do our, our funny math here. And so what you and I know, if that seven to 10 years is right, and they do have a half million dollars, we like to think if they're properly invested, that half million will be $1 million when they go to retire. If it's not properly invested and it's not going to be on track to do that, then that becomes a little bit of a problem. Sure. And investment allocation and risk tolerance is going to play a big part of that conversation on whether or not you can expect it to potentially double in that seven to 10 year period. 
If you're a, a very conservative person, you, you might end up a little bit short. If you're overly aggressive, well, you still might end up a little bit short depending on what the markets do. And so th this is a, a great time. Seven to 10 years out gives you a ton of flexibility and frankly is a perfect time to start looking at what your retirement is going to look like or your assets are going to look like in order to know if you need to ramp up those contributions a little bit or if you can kind of start hitting that glide path on the way into retirement from here and just maintain what you're doing. I think in order to answer a housing question or a major purchase decision this close to retirement, you have to first answer the retirement question. And so, and to do that, and I, I we actually answered this question in USA Today last week in my column. So uh, let me show you how I broke it down. Basically, it works like this. Uh, let's say that emailer has an $80,000 lifestyle. Like I had to choose some number. I chose $80,000. Uh, and let's say that he is going to want an $80,000 lifestyle of $2019 in 2029, which is 10 years from now. We're going to have to uh, adjust for the sneaky thing that steals your buying power, Dame. That's inflation. I set you up perfectly there. Thank you. I feel like you did a good job, but it was really about me. It was the work that was put in beforehand. Yeah. So inflation. So let me do show you a little trick, everybody. At 10 years out, the best way to figure out how much money you need 10 years from now is to take the amount of money you need now and multiply it by uh, 1.2 because you essentially need an additional 20% for a 10-year period to replicate the buying power of the current period. Oh boy. So $80,000 in 2019, the equivalent in 2029 is actually $95,000. And so Dame, let's say of that, um, 50,000 of it's spoken for in social security or pension, and this person needs to replace $45,000 um, in 2029. Like, again, we're trying to see where does your retirement income come from? Just like you said, we think that this person needs to come up with 45000 from these $500,000 in assets, which is to say the person and his wife would need $1.125 million in assets in 2029 to create the $45,000 that he needs. Thoughts? I think that's a reasonable estimation based on the information that we've got and some of the assumptions that we have to make. Now, does, that, does their current lifestyle and their current habits support achieving that. Um, yeah, potentially, yes, they do. Now, how does the housing question back into this? Well, and by the way, we made up this $80,000 oh, yeah. number because we don't know. So if this emailer is like, well, no, it's actually 120,000 bucks is what we need. This situation looks much worse. Yeah, there's, that's a different conversation. It's entirely. conceivable at 80, uh, which then turns into 95, 10 years from now, much higher than that. It, I'll just flat out say it's a bad idea to buy the house. Yeah, I, I think we are, with the numbers that we cherry-picked, we can make make sense of this. Mm -hmm. If they're higher than what we've cherry-picked, then there needs to be some really hard examination done to even be able to consider this. Because not only are they going to have a higher cost of living in that $45,000 of the house value itself, they're going to pump sixty dollars to $80,000 in it, and if it's a nicer house, the utilities and maintenance costs are going to be completely different. And so in working backwards off retirement, is, which is what people need to do, um, I would say if you're currently living on $80,000 or below, you have a chance. Yeah. If it's more than that, you probably shouldn't do it. And if it's a bigger house, nicer house, nicer area, taxes are going to be higher. 
uh, insurance is going to be higher. So the, there are two costs that you're going to maintain into retirement as well, even if you manage to pay this thing off. And what about the idea that this person is sending the generation in front of them into a, an assisted living facility? What are the preparations that this guy has made when it comes to the inevitability, potentially, 20, 30 years from now? Yeah, it's a good question. It's one that needs to needs to be answered. I think it's a lot easier to look at your own uh, mortality uh, when you're dealing with someone else's, you know? Oh, yeah, sure. It's one of those things that uh, you start considering somebody else, and then all of a sudden that, that view turns introspective. Yeah, so if you're ever in this situation where you're trying to make a giant major purchase, a giant major purchase, Dave. It's well, a big one. Well said. You know, funding a wedding for a child, funding college for a child, funding a, a, a second career for yourself, starting a business, buying your, what do you call it, empty nester home. Yeah. Anytime you do that, you have to start to answer the question of whether you should make the decision by first examining retirement, seeing if it's okay. If it is okay, you get to move on to choice B, which is, will it be okay if I make this decision? That's how it works. Because, Dame, if you can't answer the first question of, well, if I don't do anything, is retirement okay? Then you really haven't earned the right to ask the second question, which is, how does this decision impact my retirement? So there we go. Coming up after the break, we have a disability insurance question. We don't get those much. I'm Pete the Planner, and we'll do that next. back on the Pete the Planner show. Damien, coming up later in the show, I'm going to give you my nightmare flight story. I can hardly wait. You've already heard parts of it. I'm not going to give the gory details because of the FCC, but let me give you the long story short. I had a migraine headache. Five minutes later, a random 10-year-old boy who I have no relationship with in any way, shape, or form was a fellow passenger vomited all over me. So that's coming up in the show. I think I'll excuse myself for that portion. Oh my. Anyway. Hi, Pete and team. That's the mic arm. It sounds like my knees. I need to order some lube. Hi, Pete and team. I'm a huge fan and I've listened to all of your shows. I have a question about disability insurance. My husband and I recently talked to a financial planner who ran some quotes for us. The premiums are pretty expensive, but when I told the agent that we probably couldn't afford it, he said, we couldn't afford not to have it. I'm going to hit a timeout. How many timeouts do I get per uh, segment? Unlimited. Oh, my gosh. Are you just saying that because I'm the boss? Yes. Okay. Man, there's so much there so early. First of all, thanks for listening. Second of all, um, you know, disability insurance is interesting to me because it can be expensive for a couple different reasons. Mm -hmm. Three different reasons that I can think of. Let's start with the easiest is... Uh, your current health and viability, mm -hmm. right? If you've got some health issues, it could be more expensive, just like health insurance or mm -hmm. life insurance. Uh, second thing uh, that affects premium amount uh, is your occupation, right? It, it is less expensive for people who have less dangerous jobs. Yep. However, the other part of that too is it is also based on the level of pay that that occupation makes. It is it is a weird insurance that way. Yeah. I, if you think about it, it, it does make sense the way it's, it's structured and the way the actuaries have it figured. But 
that being said, you know, two people that have greatly differentiating jobs could end up paying the same amount in premiums just based on a couple different factors. Another strange one is the concept of what's called own OCK or any OCK, yeah. which is the difference between the policy pays out if you can can't do your specific job versus if you can't do any job at all. You know, if it's only own OCK, that means, well, you can't do your job, but you can go do another job, so we're not going to pay you, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's some pretty intense stuff. So, and then the other thing we need to deal with in the first paragraph of this email is the classic: you can't afford not to. It gives me the willies. I, mean, I can't tell you the number of times I've come across that phrase. You know, the, the classic. The, the, there's two classic examples: insurance sales, right? Mm-hmm. And then the, the other one is often the old school 401k meeting. You know, where. You're in the workplace, and, and there's a 401k person at the front of the room, and they say you need to save more for retirement. And then the participant says, I can't save anymore. And then you, you, the other guy says, well, you can't afford not to save enough anymore. That's exactly what he says. He says Enjoy the bagels. And he leaves. And he's like, here's my car. It's called me. My name's Tom. Oh, yeah, well. I, you know, I did, a, I did a study. 85% of people that did those meetings named were Tom. Wow. I never would have guessed. Uh, yeah. It's true. Sounds scientific. Look it up. Researchers point it out. Okay, let's continue with the email. He recommended a policy that would replace 60 to 70% of our income until age 65. We are both 38, two young kids, no debt, and a manageable mortgage. We have health insurance, $250,000 in retirement accounts, which include Roth IRAs and 403Bs and $100,000 invested in a brokerage account that we could tap into in case of emergency, plus a liquid emergency fund of six months' expenses. In case of a long-term disability, we could cut way back on discretionary spending, mainly annual vacations, travel, and dining out, and cut back on our savings and still be okay for day-to-day expenses. Am I wrong in thinking that if we can get by without the income, we don't really need the insurance if so, what would you recommend for the amount and duration of coverage? The full amount of for up to age 65 or a lower amount of coverage, maybe just for the mortgage or a shorter time frame, five to 10 years, lots of options. I'd really appreciate your thoughts on this. Please let me know if you have any more questions. Thanks very much. Okay, you get first cut. I think the one thing we want to make sure that we're clear on is that you and I both recognize the value of disability insurance. I, I just, I'm about to get the feeling here. By the way, I totally agree. I think it's incredibly important, but I have a feeling we're about to disagree on this. Okay. I, especially for a young family. I, I think yeah. disability insurance is really, really important for a young family. And, and, and let me interrupt you as, as I interrupt you prior to the interruption. They've done an amazing job so far. Yeah, they've done a really great job, especially if when she says that they could cut way back on discretionary spending and be fine, essentially. Yeah. And cut back on their savings. I, they're doing things right. All right, where are you at? I think they could get a smaller amount. Okay, we disagree. It's okay. Let's 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 go for it here. Tell me why. Because of what you just said. Potentially. Now, the the one question I do have is how is the income? I does I can't remember. Do they say that they both work or just one of them? I don't. Does it say? Is that undefined? You know, that's a really good question. I feel like they both work. I, do, I, think. I think there was a phrase in there that made, that made me believe they both work. Yeah, I feel like they both work. Uh, yeah, here's, I, I think here would, here's my argument. 
growing up, my dad's best friend was a high power attorney mm-hmm. and was a very well insured guy, had a lot of life insurance, had a top of the line disability insurance uh, program and got a very rare brain disease. And it supported his family throughout that time up until his death and then the life insurance took over from there. So I feel like my comments are colored by by a very personal story of a very well-to-do family that's life would have turned even more upside down had they'd had to worry about money while dealing with their father's brain condition. And so to me, it's like, I disagree with the insurance agents. You can't afford not to. I totally disagree with that because I think they can very clearly afford to, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But I think it's, it's you're more likely, this is true, by the way, you're more likely to use disability insurance prior to age 65 than life insurance. Mm-hmm. And I think people don't know that or they forget that or ignore it. Yeah, I... I could very easily be convinced of your position. However, based on what they've been able to accomplish, and they're, she, she indicates that they are excellent savers, and it appears that, that they are, that potentially they may be able to self-fund some of this. Because if you're talking about some, a catastrophic disability, there may be long-term care involved. There could be, but... but the other side of that is they wouldn't have the funding for that. But I'm saying maybe dial it back and start going on playing both sides of the street, doing some disability and long-term care. They're 38. Why would they buy get long-term care insurance when they're 38? You wouldn't get that until you're 50. See, because look, I think their side of this is too. They're they're trying to replace 67 percent, 60 to 70 percent of their income, a normal disability policy through work. You're going to be taxed on what the benefit is. Right. They're putting it in pre-tax, so you're going to get the, the benefit's going to be taxed when it comes out. But if they do the supplemental policy, that portion, since they're... It's tax-free. It's tax-free. Yeah. I think people don't realize how hard it is to live on 60 to 70% of your income. So even if they did a hybrid long-term care policy, one of the, some of the new ones that are coming out? Not at 38. I, I, don't, I don't think so. I'm, look, if I'm wrong, it'd only be the 300th time today. <laughs> but I, I don't... I wouldn't look at long... I'm 41. I'm not looking at long-term care for at least another 9 or 10 years. Okay. I mean, despite what I look like, I look like I should shop them right now. Yeah. Not looking good for me. Okay. You know what? I feel like we need to continue this discussion through the break. Okay. Well, I mean, through the break and then through into the next segment. Because I I have some additional thoughts on it. If you're just joining us on the program, good for you. There's a commercial in 10 seconds. We're going to come back. We're talking about disability insurance, the need for it best practices, maybe define some more terms around it. You're listening to the Pete the Planner Show, Damian Dunn in studio. Join us after the break. Back on the Pete the Planner show in the middle of a discussion about disability insurance. Man, life is exciting. Mm. How excited are you right now? Me? Yeah. It doesn't matter what I feel. Damien and I might be in the midst of a... Not, we're not in a disagreement. We just see this differently. Yeah. But that's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's the whole point of opinions. The, 
uh, if you're just joining us, a lady emailed us. Her and her husband are both 38, young kids, have uh, 250000 saved for retirement, another 100000 in brokerage accounts. Their financial advisor is telling them that they can't afford not to have more disability insurance, which Damien and I both hate that. Ugh. <laughs> that line, you can't afford not to. You can just hear Tom saying that. Um, I don't know if the guy's name is Tom. And so the question is, is that is the is the advisor right? Um, the premiums that he's quoting get the person up to age 65. And, and typically the reason for that is because that's when you start to get into being on Medicare and you start to look at also uh, Social Security and those sorts of things. Um, so one of our questions was, and Damien, I was saying this to you during the break and you weren't listening. And so I said, well, I'll just tell you on the air. Should they shorten the time frame? You know, five to, to, to five to 10 years worth of benefit coverage as opposed to 65. So let, let's discuss this. Five to 10 years, it buys you time, but it doesn't solve the problem itself. Yeah, it would definitely give you flexibility, which is the more of that you can have in a situation like this, the better. And if you know that you've got five to 10 years to plan to make accommodations for whatever adjustments to your life you're dealing with, there's a value to that in and of itself, let alone with that flexibility that you've bought yourself. So, um, uh, making the policy less expensive by shortening the time frame can be a really reasonable approach to finding a you know, very nicely paying long-term disability policy. Okay, so I don't disagree, but I, I want to continue to color it though, right? There's this idea though too, if you have one person in a couple who's disabled, a lot of times the other person becomes the caregiver. Sure. Yeah. So that which precludes that person from going to work. I mean, because then they are the caregiver. They're doing a lot of the parenting in mm -hmm. the scenario. I mean, and they're working. Uh, and the other side of this too, arguably, has to do with what we talked about in the first segment here. Is the policy based on any OC or own OC? Is the policy cover someone if they cannot accomplish any occupation? Or does it cover them if they can only, uh, or, or if they can't just do their occupation? Right. The preference, the more expensive version is ONOC, mm -hmm. right? If you can't do your occupation, you are considered disabled. If it is ENIOC, that means that um, if you can go take tickets at a movie theater in lieu of the fact that you were a high power attorney, then you're not covered because you better head to the movie theater and start pulling tickets. Yeah, or a common example would be a, a surgeon who who's, right. you know, you know needs their hands or their, their legs to be able to stand up for a, a long period of time at an operating table. If something goes wrong that's going to prohibit them from being able to do that, gosh, they'd probably rather get 60 to 70% of their salary from that instead of going to do some uh, different occupation. You know, something that was beginning, I haven't dealt directly in disability insurance for at least 10 years, but something that was really going on during that time frame was the impact of mental health oh. in the disability field. And I think most people would agree we've come a long way in the last 10 years of how we deal with mental health and treat it and accept it as the serious issue it is. And I just, I'm wondering aloud, and maybe we have a disability insurance expert on the show sometime, what has happened in the world of disability is, are you considered disabled um, if you are suffering from severe depression? And because I know if you had any history or family history of mental health concerns, um, then it would really affect your ability to get disability insurance 10 years or so ago. I do know that there are 
some people, uh, and this is what they claim they got Social Security disability for, was for um, mental disorders. Sure. So uh, it, it may be completely reasonable, and I would imagine it depends on carrier to carrier yeah. uh, for this to see how liberal they are with their, their policies and what, what they cover and consider as a disability. You know, another path this family could take is they could go straight to their employer and look at what supplemental coverages are available during open enrollment, sure. which is just a few months away. I mean, that'd be a great place to start. Um, and I also sort of you know, wonder aloud here, I think if you're going to get the best of the best disability insurance policy, that is, that is a luxury, meaning you've got to have so much income that you can part with a little of your discretionary income and not care. You know, in my dad's friend's example that I gave, he was a partner in a law firm. I mean, mm-hmm. dude mm-hmm. was making p- plenty of coin. Uh, and the thought back then, I could be wrong on this. I'm just trying to go in the memory. The thought back then when I used to deal with disability insurance is it would essentially cost you 1% of your income a year. I think, is that right? Does that sound right? It's, it's probably been even longer since I've looked at it, yeah, to be honest. One to, yeah, it can't be too much more than that. And the point was... Yeah, I don't know. Maybe you're making a point that doesn't exist. That wouldn't be the first time. Yeah. Anyway, disability insurance, I, I think it's a great thing. I think um, to, to this particular emailer, uh, I, I don't think the, the salesperson is trying to get over on you. I don't particularly like their language. I think what they're trying to sell you is a very valuable, high-quality product, uh, especially if it's own OC, not mm-hmm. any OC. Um, and if you can afford it, I would do it. If you can't, then uh, arguably cut back on the coverage uh, in terms of maybe from age 65 to the five or 10 year policy, it's a good way to save. I would not change own OC to any OC. I think that is a mistake um, because then you're gonna be in a tough situation and forced to do a job that the person doesn't wanna do. Yeah, I, I would definitely keep the own OC in there and then maybe find a way to make it fit the budget that you've got. Yeah. Um, what else do we want to work on here uh, before the break? Did you see the thing about Aretha Franklin and the, the she's wills? dead? She's she passed still, away. I, yeah, yeah. No, I did see that. So when she passed away originally, the big story was that there weren't any wills that she didn't have any uh, executable wills on okay. record anywhere. Okay. They recently found three in her house, one of which was stuffed under some cushions in her living room. You know, that's actually where I keep my will is I keep it in a, um, a peanut butter jar under my sink in my bathroom. Fantastic. None of that's true. Three, are they handwritten? Three handwritten wills dated with different dates. In her handwriting? In her handwriting around her house. How far apart were the dates? Do you know? Uh, that I don't know. Uh, this is a, the latest one was dated in March of 2014. Like I'm about to ask you a bunch of questions that you probably don't know the answer to because you're not an expert on Aretha Franklin other than her discography. Um, was she of... Um, Sound know? mind? Yes. Uh, is, I haven't seen anything that would say to the contrary. You know what? Well, look, if you have a dynamic life like Aretha Franklin probably did... Um, I don't know. People come in and out of your life. You go through ups and downs of your career. I don't think it would be that unusual for someone in that position to write three handwritten wills. Well, three wills 
I, I think wills when you maybe get to that stature or have that type of estate potentially. Sure. I think those become pretty fluid documents would be my guess. However, I would have guessed that she had a, a team of attorneys that were helping her with all sorts of different aspects of her business. Can I assume the wills conflict with each other? Um, I, I guess I would make that assumption too. Yeah. Um, maybe, yeah, they, they would have to. Why else would she have made changes to them and, and done three different handwritten ones? How many copies of your will exist? Five. Really? Yeah. And so they're dispersed amongst different people and boxes and places. Yep. And there's still one with the uh, writing attorney. Look at you. What are you, a CFP? Yeah. That's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's what I pay my dues for. Jeez. So is this the advice you're giving us here in the last 30 seconds of the show? Handwrite wills? No, <laughs> I, I would encourage you to go see an attorney uh, and ask them to prepare legal and estate documents for you. And get several notarized copies? Do you, are they notarized? Like, how does that work? Uh, yeah, notarized copies. And they are distributed amongst probably your executor, uh, maybe a backup executor, the attorney yourself. Coming up after the break, good on you, son, dad. Thanks. Uh, coming up after the break, uh, my nightmare flight story from a couple weeks ago in Kansas City, and The Blom. I'm Pete the Planner, and this is my show. This week's biggest waste of money of the week is... I'll get to it in a second. Damien, are you ready for my nightmare travel story? Let's have it. Okay, so first I have to tell you about this weird medical condition I have. One out of every four to five times I land at the Indianapolis airport, I get a migraine headache when the plane starts in its descent, okay? And that is based on the speed at which you descend, right? Hmm. Okay, it's just a thing. It is a medical condition. I don't know the name of it. It is prevalent in men of our age. So if men in the upper 30s or lower 40s or susceptible to this, it's a pressure-based headache. It is immediate onset, and it is a migraine 12 out of 10 on the pain scale. And it, it, I've been going on for probably four to five years. I'm used to it now. That doesn't mean it doesn't hurt as bad, but it, it just, it doesn't scare me because I know it's there. Do you, do you grow out? I mean, do you age out of it at some the point? The second you land. No, I mean, like, like in oh, five more years, can, can you expect it to be if I make it that far? Anyway, it feels like your head's going to explode. So anyway, this happens to me a couple Tuesdays ago at 1 a.m. on a you know a late flight home. And so like 10 minutes into the what will be a 20-minute migraine with 10 minutes to go in the flight, I smell something awful. And I was like, oh, that's weird. So instead of just rubbing my eyes, I then plug my nose because I'm just trying to get this headache to go away. But then just something in the, the universe just didn't feel right. And I sort of looked down at myself. And I have what is someone's stomach contents all over me. Mm. And so my first reaction was, did I do that? <laughs> like, <laughs> was that me? Am I, did I have such a migraine that I vomited all over myself with a meal I didn't have? And, and, and the answer to that question was no. What I discovered was there's about a 10-year-old boy sitting in front of me, directly in front of me on the plane, in his own seat, not on my lap. And somehow he projectile vomited backwards while strapped into a seatbelt. I think he brought his hands up to his face and sort of shoved it backwards. Like when you try to wash a spoon in your sink. <laughs> that was graphic. Ugh. Anyway, it went all over me, went all over my bag. And because we were in the landing procedure, the flight attendants wouldn't let 
me get up or give me anything to clean it off. And so then we taxi to the gate, but the, the jet bridge driver was unavailable. So we sat at the gate for five to 10 minutes. So needless to say for 20 additional minutes, I just had someone's vomit all over me in the midst of a migraine headache at one thirty in the morning. And it was the worst. It was really the worst moment of my life. And there's, I'm glad to share it with you. There's really not any apology that, that can be said at that point, is there? And I can tell you the one they said didn't cover it. Okay. They just look at me and they go, they go did it get on you? And I said, yes. And they go, oh, sorry. Hmm. I don't know what I expected. This week's biggest waste of money of the week is the Louis Vuitton jump rope. Nothing is more motivating than some new gym equipment. To help get that heart rate up, Louis Vuitton has put their signature on a jump rope. Their luxury version puts a leather strand between the two handles. The grips are wrapped in a gym-friendly monogram eclipse canvas, a shadowy adaption of the brand's LV Circle signature. Damien, what would you guess is the cost of a Louis Vuitton jump rope? hundred bucks. $650. Now, here's the thing about jump ropes. I used to love the jump rope. Mm-hmm. Then based on a series of concussions that I got in college football, <laughs> um, I have to tell you, if I jump rope, immediate migraine. Really? Back to migraines, yeah. Three things give me migraines. Flying, bad def- descents and flying. Number two, jumping rope. And number three, I can't do jumping jacks without getting migraine. Really? Yeah, because my brain is messed up. Just sloshing around in there. Uh, what's your biggest waste of money of the week? Uh, my biggest waste of the money a week is the Trussell CRC system. Build as a convertible rod carry system. The case can be lengthened and shortened according to your equipment size. That's fishing equipment size, allowing it to accommodate any rig you're planning to carry. Oh, my. It can be strapped to your shoulder, mounted on a roof rack, and stood vertically by the wall in the garage, making it convenient to have whether you're walking to the lake, driving to the marina, or enjoying your catch back home. Is it a bait caster or a spinning rod? No, no, no. It's, it's a... I'm going to show Pete a picture. Oh, guys, pictures on on the radio. Pictures on the radio. It's basically an aluminum tube that you can slide. Oh, it just holds your rod. It isn't a rod. No, no, no. no. It's just a way to make sure that your rods and and reels don't get broken in transport. No one likes a damaged rod. Nope. So uh, if you had to put a penny, a few pennies, on this type of fishing protection. $299. 325. That's a pretty good guess. Yeah, it was. It's a waste of money, dude. I've never damaged a rod, but I've damaged my brain. That's right. What's in financial current events this week? Did uh, Actually, it wasn't this week. It was a few weeks ago. That billionaire, Robert F. Smith, F stands for freaking awesome. Can you say that on the radio? I think so. He uh, offered to pay off essentially about $40 million of student loans for the graduating class. Uh, what university was it? I should know that. Was it Townsend? No, that's not right. Um, it, Morehouse. Morehouse. Great, great school. So I've been studying this. First of all, it's great. Mm-hmm. It's great. Um, however, there is this. I, there's a couple things going on here. Number one, what will he pay off? Will he pay off Parent Plus loans, 401k loans, home equity loans? of parents because you could have the young people free of their student loans, but there's a new study that just came out. I don't know if I even showed it to you yet, Dame, in which the average balance for parents on student loans for the new college graduating class is higher than the grads themselves loan balances. 
So that's an issue. The other issue here is this idea that based on the tax structure of our country and the IRS and the carried interest loophole and all these sorts of things, that because this gentleman has such a low tax rate, the government isn't able to have lower priced education because we give all the tax breaks to billionaires. I'm not saying I buy that, but this also happened in the 1920s, 1930s, I believe the time frame was with Andrew Carnegie building a bunch of public libraries. And the same argument took hold is that he had such tax advantages based on being the richest man in the world that he was able to build all these libraries despite the fact that if he just paid taxes, the government could have done itself. Do you buy that? You're giving me dirty uh, looks the whole time I was saying that. Uh, you know, it, when a philanthropist wants to do something nice, yeah, get the heck out of the way and let him do it. Let's not start stewing over, well, he's only able to do it because we don't tax him enough. Well, I, I'm not agreeing nor disagreeing, but there seems like there's some validity to that idea that if certain people don't have uh, the tax uh, responsibilities, burden that that others do, then of course they it's easier for them to amass more wealth. And these these ultra wealthy people have their income streams set up a certain way where they are going to be taxed on basically capital gains tax rates. Sure. That's just the way it is. That's smart tax planning if, if you're somebody in their position if it's legal do it and it is legal so don't do it so the issue really becomes with policy and not the person right i would hate to be next year's speaker at the morehouse graduation yeah there's no winning that one no it's like hey can you do it no i'm good yeah yeah i don't even know if i would speak at a pj's beauty college at this point commencement ceremony like the expectation is ridiculous yeah I, you, gosh, that one guy paid off $40 million. What are you going to do? It's yeah. like, oh, I don't know. Maybe answer a few questions in the lobby. Maybe take a picture with your mom. Yeah. It's, there's value there. Do you see that uh, f- a few weeks ago that famous grumpy cat died? You know, I wasn't super familiar with uh, grumpy cat's work. Yeah. Apparently, grumpy cat had made $100 million. What? You didn't see that? A hundred, a hundred, a cat one hundred million dollars. So I'll be honest: if you're the cat's owner, you're not even mad it's dead. It left you a hundred million dollars. Well, who wrote the cat's will? Uh, I believe Aretha Franklin. Oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. R e s c a t. That's what it means to me. Hmm. I I would I mean like we were talking before the show today. The earlier you laugh at me. The, I'll stop. The quicker it goes away. It goes away. And I, if I'm you, I would have laughed at that. There's your lesson, everybody. The sooner you laugh at me, the sooner I go away. If I have to stay with it, I will be here all day until you laugh. So just give up. I expect a flood of emails that just say, ha, 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 from now and on. And then stop listening because I'm done with you. Uh, Dame, that's the end of the show. I'm sending good vibes to everyone because good vibes are all that's in the budget. If you want emails, do so. Ask Pete at PeteThePlanner.com. Ask Pete at PeteThePlanner.com. I'm Pete the Planner. Bye-bye. Thank you.